Come unto him, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Thanks. That's a very uh, comforting word. Uh, I am really delighted that Bill and Susie are are here with us. Uh, I've had 14 years of association with David and uh, Claudia, and they've been wonderful years. David uh, taught us that uh, the Lord is seeking our worship, and he taught us uh, what it meant to worship God in spirit and in truth. And it's just great to have Bill and Susie here to uh, continue in that tradition of spiritual worship. Uh, Bill and I were swapping yarns before the uh, morning service, and he told me about one occasion when he was leading worship and stepped off of the uh, platform and fell into the piano. And the lid was up, and, and the corner of the lid caught him right between the eyes and knocked him out. <laughs> and Susie had to come over and revive him and getting back up on his feet, and then he continued on with worship. That's the kind of stuff that he's made out of. I told him he didn't have to prove himself uh, that way here. (laughs) Bill said that's why the piano's up there. He's taking no chances. I want to introduce you to a a friend of mine, I I think my best friend in the New Testament. Uh, His name is Joseph better known by his nickname, Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas is a, is a remarkable character. He, he stands in my mind as a prime example of the, of the good that you can do if you don't care who gets the credit for it. He's a quiet, obscure man, mostly behind the scenes. Most of you probably don't know who Barnabas is. He's certainly not... Uh, not as famous as some of his uh, other contemporaries, uh, Paul and Peter and Stephen and Philip and, and Mark and others that we know about from the Acts of, of the Apostles. But he left us an everlasting uh, legacy. If it, if it weren't for Barnabas, there would be no Apostle Paul. There'd be no John Mark. There'd be no gospel of the Mark, uh, Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. His, uh, his story begins in Acts chapter 4. Would you turn there with me, please? We pick up uh, Luke's history of the early church, chapter 4, verse 32. And this description of the mutual love and generosity of, of these early, early believers. Luke's been describing the outward witness of the church. Now he turns to inward concerns. Acts 4.32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. No one felt that uh, what's mine is mine, what's uh, yours is mine. They believed that uh, what was theirs belonged to God and therefore was theirs to be shared with, with those that were in need. Things were really tough in the early church in Jerusalem. Uh, the Christians there were feeling a great deal of heat. They were being ostracized. And their businesses were boycotted. They were losing their tenured positions in the schools in Jerusalem. They were, they were suffering financially, and everyone pitched in and 
They gave what they had to help one another out. And uh, we're told that with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was with them all. They, they caught this picture of God's giving heart and his grace, and they were touched by that, and they wanted to give as well. Verse 34, there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he has need. And then Luke draws from this body of believers one individual, Barnabas, as an example of one who is characterized by lavish love. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And we're given some bits and pieces of Barnabas' biography here. We're told that... uh, his original name was Joseph, or Joseph, that he was a Cypriot. He was born and raised on that little island right off the coast of Palestine. In Barnabas' day, it was a very fertile island. Property there was worth a great deal. If the piece of land that Barnabas owned title to was on Cyprus, it would be like owning a piece of land in the middle of New York City or downtown San Francisco. And and his gift, therefore, would be uh, indeed very, very lavish. But even if it was a small gift, it's indicative of the, of the magnanimous nature of his heart. He just great, big heart, just wanted to, to give. That was the hallmark of his, uh, of his life. The apostles nicknamed him Barnabas. Bar is the Aramaic word for son, and Navi is the word for help or comfort or encouragement, aid. Uh, son of is a Semitic idiom that suggests someone characterized by that particular uh, capacity. We have the same idiom in English. If we were describing Barnabas today, we'd say he's a son of a helper, kind of person that uh, just gives himself to encourage and minister to the needs of, of others. He sold a field he owned, and he brought the money in and put it at the, at the apostles' feet. Barnabas was never a prominent individual in the church. He was always a secondary figure and played second fiddle to others throughout his life. But he, uh, he gave himself to seeing that others came into their, uh, into their own. Would that we all had that focus. You know, we, we want everything to center around us. We want to be noticed. We want to be acknowledged. We want to be appreciated. We want to be praised. We want to be singled out for for honor. We want to tell our tales. We want people to minister to us and listen to us and help us. Barnabas was one who just set all that aside and, and he, he saw to it that others came to possess, possess everything that God had in, in mind for them. In Philippians 2, Paul says an amazing thing. I don't, I don't know if you've ever thought carefully about his statement there, but he puts it this way. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but each of you, he says, should consider others better than yourselves. Now, that's interesting. That doesn't mean that we should develop a a gigantic inferiority complex. He's just saying in terms of, of needs, we ought to be thinking in terms of the needs of others and think that others are more worthy of being ministered to than we think of ourselves. As, as being served. 
Barnabas was always in the background, never prominent, but he was always seeing to it that others were able to step into the positions of prominence and importance which the Lord had called them to. Years ago, I came across a, a prayer in a Catholic prayer book. It's entitled A Litany of Humility. And I pasted it in the back of my Bible. Uh, it's one of my prayers, would, would that it were, were true. O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred to others, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the fear of being overlooked, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebuke, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being suspected, deliver me. Jesus, that others may be loved more than I, that others may be esteemed more than I, that in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease, that others may be chosen and I set aside, that others may be praised and I unnoticed, that others may be preferred before me in everything, that others become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That was uh, Barnabas' spirit. Now, uh, Acts, uh, Luke continues his history of the Acts of the Apostles. In chapter 5, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Their duplicity is clearly set in contrast to uh, Barnabas' generosity in the story of the stoning of Stephen and the persecution of the church and its expansion. Heat always causes expansion, and as uh, the early church began to feel the fierce wrath of the unbelievers around them, they scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, and the gospel began to move out toward the toward the Gentile world. Right in the center of that persecution was Saul of Tarsus, who was the inveterate enemy of of the church. He was on his way up to Damascus, breathing out murderous threats against the church, bearing letters giving him permission to imprison and kill Christians. And as you know, on the way to Damascus, he met the Lord. He was arrested in his path, and he was drawn into a relationship with, with Christ. And then he went on into Damascus, and, and he was housed for a while in the house of one of the prophets there, Ananias. And then uh, he probably went off into Arabia for a time. And then came back to Damascus and began to preach. And uh, things didn't go as well as he thought. I think Paul thought he was going to be uh, God's gift to the Jews. Intelligent, highly trained, respected, brilliant rabbi. And uh, he created a riot. Christians said, we've got to get this fellow out of town before he sets the cause of Christ back 20 years. And so they put him in a fish basket and dumped him over the wall. And Paul later says in 2 uh, Corinthians 10, uh, 11, you want to know what I glory in, what I both my most humiliating and my most ennobling night was the night that I was lowered over the wall in that basket and ran for my life through the dark. And He went down to Jerusalem. He thought surely he'd be accepted there. They'd welcome him with open arms and tried to break into the circle of the apostles and they didn't want anything to do with him. He was the most feared, hated man in town, most friendless man in town. He went from door to door, knocking on doors, trying to 
find someone who would who would take him in. And finally, verse 27 of chapter 9, Acts 9, 27, Barnabas took him in, opened up his heart to the apostle. Listen to his words. He was not controlled by his Jewish prejudices and biases. He wasn't controlled by racism or sexism or elitism or the smaller issues of politics, national pride. He just uh, realized that Barnabas rang true as he talked to him. There was a real, or that Paul, uh, Saul rang true. There was there was sincerity. He seemed to be authentic. Seemed to be authentically Christian. So Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And we know that uh, Peter housed him, sheltered him, gave him sanctuary for fifteen days, and uh, welcomed him into the apostolic band. And Paul went out to uh, begin to preach again. Created another riot. Christians said, we've got to get this fellow out of town. So they shipped him off to Caesarea, put him on a boat to Tarsus. So we'll see you later. And uh, the church went on uh, without uh, the great uh, Apostle Paul. And again, you see, you see Barnabas sponsoring someone else, thinking in terms of the needs of someone else rather than his own reputation. He laid his life and his reputation on, on the line for, for Saul. Luke then uh, turns to some issues having to do with the preliminary uh, mission of the church to the Gentiles, the story of Cornelius, one of the first Gentiles to respond to the gospel. And uh, then uh, in chapter 11, verse 19, the scene shifts. Here we are about halfway through the Acts of the Apostle, and Luke takes the focus away from the mother church in Jerusalem, and he puts it on the the city of Antioch, Antioch then became the center of, of Christendom from that point on, the center from which these great missionary voyages of the Apostle Paul were, were sent. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's like Chicago or Seattle or San Francisco. The only larger cities were Rome and Alexandria, and it was a very cosmopolitan, polyglot city, people from all over the place, from east and west. It was it's described in ancient literature as the gateway to the east or the west, the most strategic place from which to launch a a mission, and the church was founded there almost by accident. Uh, chapter eleven, verse nineteen. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. You have to go back to eight four and pick up the story there of the persecution that began as a result of Stephen's martyrdom. Those who were scattered as a result of that martyrdom, martyrdom began to travel up the coast to Phoenicia over to the island of Cyprus and then to Antioch, which is up in north uh, Lebanon today, telling the message only to Jews. See, these were, these were Jewish Christians. They were controlled by their Jewish scruples, their dietary laws, and, and the, the, the abhorrence with which they held Gentiles, the way they ate, the way they lived, the way they dressed. They didn't like anything about them. They stayed away from them, so they, they shared the good news with Jews only. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, Cyrene's in North Africa, went to Antioch and began to speak to, to Greeks, kind of an experiment, uh, see what would happen, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And to their surprise, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Uh, turned to the Lord is Paul's expression for what happened to Gentiles when they became Christians. 
Paul says in First Thessalonians that uh, of those people there, you turn from idols to the living and, and true God. Said that of Cornelius, Luke does, that he turned to the Lord. It said of the Ethiopian eunuch that he turned to the Lord. They repent of their past and, and turn away from their idolatry to the Lord. And that's what, what happened to these Greeks. And news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. He was their troubleshooter. And when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Here here comes this uh, staunch Jew, dyed in the wool, Levite, raised in a strict Jewish home. Probably never ate a piece of bacon in his life. And he's thrust into this Gentile situation and uh, people didn't do things the way they did it back home. They raised their hands when they sang and they clapped and they had long hair and they, they dressed strangely and, and they weren't like him in so many ways. And he had to make a lot of adjustments, you see, a lot of adjustments. But again, he wasn't governed by his bias and his prejudices. What he saw was the grace of God, you see. God gives us the, the gift of discernment, not to criticize, but to see what's really going on. And uh, he, he saw their hearts. He saw grace. He saw their winsomeness. He saw evidence of the gift of the Holy Spirit to them. He, he saw something in that change in their character that, that helped him to realize that they, too, were authentically Christian. And he, he embraced them. And he began to teach this fledgling group of uh, Christians. I think all of you know in my earlier years I worked with university students and uh, I was on the campus of a university on the West Coast during the 60s when they were burning down campuses and rioting and trashing things right and left. Those were exciting years. And, and uh, the Christians that were, uh, that were involved in that group were a really very weird-looking group. And uh, I, I invited my father once to attend a meeting that we had in a fraternity house, the Theta Delta Chi house. A number of people that you all know were in that house. Steve Newman, for one. Steve used to wear his hair down here, wear it in a queue, and had his long Fu Manchu mustache. And Brian Fisher was in that house. And a number of others that you see, you know, they're still hanging around here that were from those years. They look a little more uh, normal today, but uh, back then they were, they were, they were fairly freaky and my father was, uh, grew up in the South. He was pastor of Schofield Memorial Church. That's the church that enshrines the memory of the Schofield Bible. And, and he, he was fairly fixed in his thinking about the counterculture and what ought to be done with these uh, people who have long hair and who dress a certain way. And I uh, invited him into this uh, fraternity house. And we had to kick the beer cans out of the way to get up to the room. And as I recall... Uh, I think Steve Newman was leading a Bible study in the room, and we sat on the floor, and, and these, these young men and women began to share what, what Christ had done in their hearts. And my father just sat there, didn't say a word. And I kept glancing at him, wondering what, what was going through his mind. And finally, as we were driving home, uh, after several blocks of driving, and I didn't know how to, how to uh, probe his thinking, he broke the silence by saying, so those kids really... Uh, they really love the Lord Jesus, don't they? And I said, yes, they really do. 
He said, I could see the grace of God in their lives. And that dear man went back to Schofield Memorial Church the next Sunday morning and and announced to the congregation that they were going to open doors to these kids with their long hair and their dogs and all the rest. I just keep thinking of a line from John Fisher's song uh, about looking past the hair and straight into the eyes. Guess what Barnabas did? He didn't let his biases turn him away from authentic Christianity. He saw marks of the real thing, and he encouraged it. He began to teach these young Christians. And he soon discovered that he was over his head. The church grew rapidly. There were probably thousands of believers in that congregation. We're told in verse 25, chapter 11, verse 25. That Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the Christians and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. The Jews called Christians Nazarenes. That was a pejorative term. Uh, the Christians called, them, called themselves the way or disciples or saints or other terms, but they never used the word Christians. It was the unbelieving Greeks in the city of Antioch that tagged them with that name. Do you know why? Because they centered on Christ. They talked about the Lord Jesus. They didn't talk about their church. They didn't talk about their programs. They didn't talk about the activities of this body. They just talked about about Jesus. And they came to be called by that community around them, Christians. It was, it was Saul and Barnabas that accomplished that. They centered people on the Lord. But the point I want you to see, the more important point here, again, is, is Barnabas' magnan, magnan, uh, magnanimous heart, his magnanimity. Uh, he was willing to step out of a position of prominence and let, let Saul take over. How, how many of us would be willing to do that if, if we were the senior pastor of a large and growing church and we began to feel the strictures and limitations of our own uh, lack of giftedness and and we just stepped aside and let someone else come in and take over that, that body of believers. That's what, that's what Barnabas did. He was, as Luke puts it, a, he was a good man. Luke rarely offers any tribute to uh, the people whose history he describes. But of Barnabas, he said he's a, he's a good man. We, we use that term relatively all the time. You know, he's a good old boy, but... Luke is thinking absolutely here. The, the word good that he uses, there are two words in, for good in the Greek language. This is the word that means winsome, affable, approachable, uh, warm, easygoing, gentle. The, the kind of goodness, as Paul says, for which someone might be, might be willing to die. Not self-righteousness, but true, true goodness. And he was... Filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. In other words, he was controlled by the Spirit of God and he was controlled by the Word of God. And that's what made him good. That's what makes all of us good. To the degree that any of us grow in authentic goodness, it's because we're controlled and governed by the Spirit of God. Not by our prejudices, not by our backgrounds, not by our traditions, not by our experiences. But we're governed and controlled by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. I'd be the greatest epitaph to have on your tomb. Don't you wish you'd like to leave that legacy behind? He or she, he was a good man. She was a good woman. Full of the Holy Spirit. 
and faith. That, that says it all. And that was true of Barnabas. Well, um, the church continued to, to develop there in Antioch. Turn to chapter 13. Luke tells us that uh, in the church at Antioch, verse 1, there were prophets and teachers. And you'll notice that Barnabas heads the list. He was still the acknowledged uh, leader of that body. There were other uh, teachers there. Simeon, called Niger. He was from Africa. He may be the Simeon who carried Jesus' cross. Uh, his name is Simeon of Cyrene, and there's some tradition that this is, Cyrene is in Africa as well. And this, this is the same individual. Lucius of Cyrene might be Luke, Paul's uh, personal physician. Uh, Menahem, or Menahem, it would be in Hebrew. This, this is, was a Jewish fellow who was an aristocrat. He'd been brought up with uh, Herod the Tetrarch. Quite a diversity of uh, backgrounds and social levels here. And Saul. You'll notice who's first, Barnabas, and who is last, Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I'm not sure, but I personally think that this word came to Saul and Barnabas. The Spirit uh, spoke to them. They had this uh, yearning to take the gospel onto the West, to win the West. And, and this desire was corroborated by the, by the church. They fasted and prayed and placed their hands on them and sent them off. There was the internal witness of the Spirit and then the corroborative witness of the church. And uh, the two of them, along with John Mark, who was uh, Barnabas' cousin, the son of his sister, were uh, sent off to the, to, the, to the west. Now, normally we talk about Paul's first missionary journey, but I want you to note that it was not Paul who initiated the journey, nor was he the leader of this expedition. It was Barnabas. The order is very clear here in the opening uh, uh, in Luke's opening description of this uh, journey. Uh, look at uh, verse uh, 6. They travel through the whole island, that is the island of Cyprus. They first went to uh, Barnabas' uh, home, uh, homeland because he had contacts there, apparently. And they came to Paphos, and here they, uh, they came in contact with Elimas, uh, who was a Greek or a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet, and the counselor to the proconsul there, a man by the name of Sergius Paulus, who sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Elimus tried to oppose the, the gospel, and uh, Paul uh, uh, put him in his place. And then you'll notice verse 13, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga, which is on the coast of what today is the country of Turkey. And the order is reversed. And as a matter of fact, the way Greek puts it, or the, the way Luke puts it here in the text, it's Paul and those around him. Paul now is the leader of this expedition. Here's Barnabas again, stepping aside, letting another man take the responsibility for leadership. And that order is maintained throughout the first missionary journey. Number 16, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand. This was in uh, Pisidian Antioch and a message which he delivered there in the synagogue. You'll find the same order in verse 42, Paul and Barnabas. In Iconium, chapter 14, verse 1, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. 
And then they went to Lystra and Derby. Lystra was Timothy's uh, hometown. That's the city uh, in which he first came in contact with this young man. Paul there raised a cripple. Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Ovid, the uh, Greek poet, says there was a Phrygian tradition that uh, occasionally Zeus and Hermes would show up in these little communities disguised as human beings. And on one occasion, they were so inhospitable to him, uh, only one couple would, would take them in, a couple by the name of Philemon and Bacchus, and the gods in retaliation wiped out the whole population of that uh, community except uh, these two. And that may have governed the hospitality they extended to these two men because when Paul healed that cripple, they knew this was an extraordinary man. But the interesting thing is they, they, they named Barnabas Zeus, who is the head of the Greek pantheon, and a great big fellow if you've seen his representations. And uh, uh, Paul, they named uh, Hermes or Mercury, the messenger of the gods. And Mercury's a little bitty fellow. And uh, I suspect that uh, this may tell us something of their stature. That's why I think of Barnabas as Big Barney. I think he was a big, uh, impressive, imposing-looking uh, fellow. And uh, Paul was a little, little guy that was talking all the time. So uh, they, they tagged him with these two names, but to their credit, they did not, uh, uh, they did not accept that honor. And uh, then that missionary journey completed, verse 27, they went back to Antioch, gathered the church, reported all that God had done, how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. You would think everyone would be satisfied, but some were not. There were some people that came up from Jerusalem, chapter 15, some legalistic uh, brothers from the mother church. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching their brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the way it always is. Every time the Spirit of God starts moving and things start happening, there's always someone that shows up that looks like they've been weaned on a dill pickle who uh, starts laying the law on you and uh, uh, diverting you away from, from grace. And... This is the incident to which Paul refers in Galatians 2 when he says Peter was swept away. Peter uh, had been eating with the Gentiles in Antioch, and when these legalistic brothers showed up and they said, Peter, you shouldn't be doing that. That's a violation of the dietary laws, cash root. You shouldn't be doing that. And uh, Peter got afraid, and he withdrew. and, And Paul says, even Barnabas was swept aside. Even Barnabas uh, defected and, and was a hypocrite. He knew better, but he withdrew from the, from the Gentiles. I, I love that. You know, I, I don't know how you feel about the failures of these, uh, these men and women in, in the Bible, but I, I love to see that we all have a common mud base. We're all made out of the same kind of, same kind of stuff. That no matter how much God may be using us, or how far we have gone in our progress with the Lord, we're, we're always going to fail. We're always going to, going to fall. Someone once pointed out that Walter Payton accumulated something like nine miles of rushing yardage in his career, but he fell down every 4.6 yards. And uh, I don't know, that's encouraging to me. And uh, once Barnabas got on his feet, he began to debate with these uh, 
fellows from Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas were elected by the church and sent back to Jerusalem in order to debate this issue. Interestingly enough, when they get back to Jerusalem, the order changes again. It's Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. I think it gives us some indication of the respect which the church in Jerusalem accorded to this man. I think they were still a little bit edgy about Paul. They didn't quite know how to, how to take him. And uh, Barnabas seems to be the one who was the acknowledged leader at that, at that time. And then uh, having uh, received the confirmation of the church that their mission to the Gentiles was acceptable, they headed back to Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas were ready to head out again on their second missionary journey. Verse 36 of chapter 15. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas was a gopher broke sort of a, or pardon me, Paul was a gopher broke sort of fellow. It's that temperament that God used to plant the church in, in almost every community between Jerusalem and, and Britain during his lifetime. And uh, he wanted to go back and visit the brothers and, and go on uh, to the west. And Barnabas was raring to go. He wanted to go with him. Here was another chance for Barnabas to gain notoriety. Uh, the, these next two journeys, the second, third missionary journeys of Paul, were by far the most significant. We're probably believers today because of the impact of the apostle on, on Europe in his, in his travels. And uh, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the, in the work. Uh, John Mark had accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Cyprus. He was their baggage handler. And when they uh, left Cyprus and sailed to Perga, the coast, on the coast of uh, what today is Turkey, then Asia Minor, uh, Mark went home to mother. He got frightened. Mountains ahead or bandits in the mountains in order to get into the interior of, of Asia Minor. And, and, and Mark defected. He deserted. It's the word that Paul uses. You know, our, our good judgment goes with Paul. Our heart goes with, with Barnabas. Paul saw the work. He said, I don't want that sissy along. He was lost. He'll do it again. And Barnabas had his eyes on the person. He knows that God is a God of another chance. And Barnabas was deserving of a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance. So uh, Paul selected Silas. I suspect that the church sided with Paul because we're told that they were commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. I think Barnabas was all by himself in his support of Mark, but he, he took this young man and he... He went off to uh, the island of Cyprus, and Barnabas just disappears. He gave up his opportunity to accompany the Apostle Paul. He would be as well-known as Silas, who sang with Paul in the prison in Philippi. He had all of the other adventures that Paul uh, had in his second and third missionary. Barnabas, Barnabas set all that aside in order to minister this one loser. And again, would that uh, we had that spirit, a willingness to just set aside our reputations to make ourselves nothing, as Philippians 2 puts it, in order to, uh, to serve others. 
Barnabas uh, went on encouraging uh, uh, other people. We don't know too much about him. Some of the early church fathers mentioned him. There's even a book, the Epistle, Epistle of Barnabas, that was ascribed to him, though it's much too late to have been his uh, book. But it does give you some idea of, of the respect with which the early church uh, courted, uh, they gave to him. He died uh, in, the, in the city of Salamis, which was probably his hometown. He, he was killed, martyred as a, as a Christian and buried there in Salamis. Uh, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul's in prison in Rome, and he writes to Timothy over in Ephesus, and he says, as he signs off, he says, Oh, yes, bring John Mark with you. He's useful to me for the ministry. That's such a wonderful line. Bring John Mark. He's useful for, to me for the ministry. And... Uh, Mark tagged along with Timothy when they went to Rome, and Mark apparently served the Apostle Paul in some way, and after the Apostle Paul was beheaded, then Mark uh, associated himself with the Apostle Peter, and they were involved in ministry together, and and Mark was the co-author of the Gospel of Mark. Most of the early uh, church fathers indicate that, that Peter was the author of the Gospel of Mark, and Mark was his associate in that in that effort. See, there'd be no Paul. There'd be no John Mark. There'd be no gospel of Mark if this good man had not been willing to set aside his own reputation, his own desires, his own self-interest, and and serve the needs of others. One of the church fathers, Eusebius, so he's not a church father, he's a church historian, Eusebius, uh, tells us that in 477, they interred the body of, or disinterred the body of uh, of Barnabas, they were going to move it to another location, and they discovered uh, in his hands a scroll of the Gospel of Mark. And when I read that, I couldn't help but thinking of Shakespeare's words, you know, to slightly misquote him, the good that men do is sometimes interred with their bones. There'd be no Gospel of Mark, humanly speaking, without, uh, without Barnabas, see. You see, would that we had that uh, had that spirit. You, you know, we don't have to be important to do something important. We don't have to have significance to be significant in this world. We don't have to be noticed and acknowledged and recognized and thanked and appreciated. We can we can work behind the scenes, and there is no end of the good that we can do if we don't care if we get the credit for it. I. Uh, I uh, always loved uh, Emily Dickinson's uh, poetry, and there's one one of her poems that uh, I was reading on uh, her sabbatical that I've come to love. It goes like this. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody, too? Then there's a pair of us. Uh, don't tell. They'd advertise, you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public, like a frog, to tell one's name the lifelong June to an admiring bog. The question is this, are are we really willing to be nobody so that God can make somebody out of someone else? Remember Jesus' words about taking the lower seat? He talked about going to a party and 
And we all want to gravitate toward the head table. We want to sit up front where everyone sees us. And he says, no, 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 don't do that. Take the lowest seat. Sit at the end of the table. Maybe that the host will beckon you to the head table. If, if God calls you to a place of prominence, then uh, that's the place for you. There's no other place. But uh, in the meantime, in the meantime, just be a son of encouragement. Yeah, write little thank you notes that become, become big events in people's lives. Oh, my, how, how encouraging that is. Step in alongside someone that's weak and hurting and, and, and failing. Give a, give a phone call to someone that's beginning to feel like a loser and they just can't get things right. And incite people on to, to nobility and strengthen their, their grip on God. There's no end of good that you can do if you don't care who gets the credit for it. Let's pray. Would that we all had Barnabas' spirit and uh, that heart to reach out and, and care for others. What, a, what an amazing community of believers that would be. It would be, if that were so. Uh, protect us from our self-serving ways, our desires to be ministered to. To have people who will help us and encourage us and to demand that we be recognized and seen and prominent and acknowledged and make us willing to be overlooked and forgotten. Knowing that we still can be very uh, significant in your eyes. Our names are written in heaven. We're very precious to you. You know every thought and every intent of our hearts. You see every act of encouragement and love that we extend to another. May it be true of us, as it was of Barnabas, that we could be called sons of encouragement. We ask in Jesus' name.